1: Welcome back everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, as we dive into a mystery that has divided believers and skeptics for over 70 years, the Roswell UFO Incident. It's a world-class mystery with a lot of moving parts that become easily intertwined with legend, making it a perfect choice for us here at 1001 Heroes. And be sure to stay tuned at the very end For excerpts of our Dr. Stanton Friedman interview that we did a couple of years ago, before his death, he was the leading proponent of the existence of UFOs, being a nuclear physicist and having spent a good portion of his life working on classified propulsion projects for the United States. And he speaks directly to us about Roswell. The brief? In the summer of 1947, the U.S. military cordoned off either two or three remote sites in New Mexico and sent teams of searchers across these sites numerous times for the purpose of recovering whatever had fallen from the sky onto these remote tracts of ranch and public land. These teams were accompanied by armed guards who prevented any interested civilians from getting close. A flatbed truck was seen leaving one of these sites carrying a large object beneath a tarp. This truck was seen driving down the main street of Roswell, New Mexico, before entering the Roswell Army Air Force Base, which was home for the 509th, the unit responsible for delivering atomic bombs to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A top-security, one-of-a-kind, atomic base. During the days prior to the military search, curious family members of area ranchers, upon hearing that something had crashed on Foster Ranch property north of Roswell, according to the legend created by Accumulated Accounts, discovered a debris-strewn area which contained highly unusual thin metal fragments leading to the wrecked body of an egg-shaped object with very strange-looking dead bodies inside. A second site miles away in another county, as one reported account has it, also revealed alien bodies and more wreckage. This may have been a UFO collision that occurred in a wild thunderstorm just days before. Or, as one account has it, The crash sites may have been created by a single alien ship, which was originally hit by lightning, leaving a debris field behind, then hit the ground and separated into two pieces. One piece, leaving bodies and wreckage at one site, and the last piece, leaving bodies and wreckage at a second site, three miles further on. Within days, the military took control of the situation, removing everything from sight, sanitizing the wreckage sites, and instituting a lockdown on all local media as well as creating and implementing a twofold program to one, downplay the event and limit it to one crash site by describing what happened as a military weather balloon test and two, to quash any and all mention of the event in the interest of national security and certainly disqualify it as being the crash of a UFO. Which left many people asking, did a UFO crash land onto barren Ranch land near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947? as hundreds of witnesses and surviving family members of witnesses have sworn? Or was it, as the ever-changing Air Force official line tells us, a then-secret-project high-altitude weather balloon equipped with special sound detection equipment capable of picking up sounds from Russian nuclear testing? And then you have to ask yourself, how could a weather balloon leave enough fragments that it took dozens of searchers days to clean up the areas affected? And why were two separate sites, miles apart, as witnessed by an AP photographer from a spotter plane, involved? And why did a weather balloon require a flatbed truck to remove it? And in the 70 years since, why have over 600 persons come forward to testify that, yes, a crashed UFO was found, with bodies of aliens, and that the government has been covering this up for years? It has been said that Roswell is the world's most famous, most extensively investigated, and most thoroughly debunked, UFO incident. At the start of this story, I really didn't know much about Roswell, New Mexico, except that it had earned its fame as the nearest town to the location where a UFO had reportedly crashed in the summer of 1947, that alien bodies had reportedly been recovered, and that the U.S. government has been reportedly involved in covering up the story for decades. I also knew that the Air Force had made statements saying that, yes, something had come down on the high, barren desert plateau outside of Roswell in that summer of 1947, and that it was a weather balloon, complete with strips of rubber and tinfoil and some sensitive sound sensor equipment. Sort of like a balloon with a tinfoil kite attached. A congressional investigation into the matter 50 years later apparently confirmed this, and gave the Air Force the opportunity to lift the weather balloon to classified project status. It was called Project Mogul, as a means by which we could determine, using these high-altitude balloons, if Russia was doing nuclear testing. In those years, we had every reason to be curious. Knowing the prevailing high-altitude winds travel from west to east, it's a long way around the world from New Mexico, USA, to the Soviet Union and their Ural Mountain testing facilities. It would have been much easier to launch this type of balloon from, let's say, Iceland. But that's just conjecture on my part. In past months, we've done a number of episodes covering UFO and alien stories, from the Kecksburg PA UFO and the Shag Harbor UFO, both of which I believe were made here on Earth, to a fascinating interview with nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman. That episode titled, Talking UFOs with Nuclear Physicist Stanton Friedman in our archives, in which Dr. Friedman shared some very useful knowledge regarding the probability that more intelligent and advanced civilizations with advanced crafts exist out there, to the alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, which we left up to your judgment, to the 1997 Phoenix UFO incident, to the Braxton County monster story, which I believe happened pretty much as told. In addition to these episodes, make sure to catch We're Never Alone, the story we did about NASA astronauts who have testified to seeing extraterrestrial ships and life forms. So, critics, and we all have them, can say that I have naively bought into the existence of advanced civilizations outside our realm, and in visiting UFOs. And I've bought into the fact that humans have seen various alien life forms alive and dead. And those critics would be right. I would have to deny our own civilization in order to believe that others do not exist or cannot exist. I also believe that our government, as well as the Russians, have created and flown experimental craft which have been seen and mistaken for alien craft, as was likely at Kecksburg and Shag Harbor. And maybe Phoenix, but that was an awfully big ship. I see no purpose in our military developing a mothership spanning 300 yards from tip to tip. And it would not shock me to think that our propulsion scientists at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base have attempted to gain secrets from, and have even been able to reverse-engineer, propulsion systems from downed alien crafts, and that they've been trying for decades to master long-distance interplanetary flight. As Dr. Freeman told us, once the power cell is created, we're there. And it's probably no coincidence that the body structures of our supersonic planes have come to appear nearly disc-shaped, depending on the angle from which you see them. In researching the story of Roswell, I found out quickly that the skeptics are well-represented. Although they must be getting tired of trying to explain away the increasing number of UFO sightings all over the world, especially those fascinating reports from Navy pilots who are now allowed to report and show video of what they're seeing out there. Not muzzled, as in past years. Refreshing, isn't it? And they're out there on YouTube. And it's unlikely that these extremely fast and nimble UFOs are being built by the U.S. or our global competitors. We're just not there yet. Think about it. If we were there, these Navy pilots wouldn't be talking. Any good journalist will tell you that there are five W's to be answered in any good story. Who, what, why, where, and when. We're going to start with the where and the rest will fall into place. The high desert of eastern-central New Mexico is hot, dusty, and home to rattlesnakes and scorpions, as well as ranchers who have beaten back the barren landscape enough to be able to raise cattle and sheep, provided they all have access to water. Because New Mexico is basically barren and sparsely populated, it has been home to a number of classified facilities, including Los Alamos where the first nuclear bomb was developed. White Sands Testing Ground near Alamogordo, where captured German v 2 rockets were being tested just after World War II ended in the years leading to 1950. And Roswell Air Force Base, which was called Roswell Army Air Force Base in 1947, when it was home to the 509th Bomb Group, the only atomic strike force in the world at that time. And a place which took the word classified... Seriously, with personnel who had only the highest of clearances and could be trusted to keep all aspects of their work to themselves. Roswell was the little town that supported the people who worked on that base, complete with schools, a newspaper, a radio station, and stores. Outside Roswell were large acreage ranches and a lot of public land and mountains and desert. Everybody knew everyone. One of these ranches, located about 32 miles southeast of the little town of Corona and about 75 miles north of Roswell, was the J.B. Foster Ranch, in this case a sheep ranch, and the foreman of this ranch was a man named Mac Brazel. The following narrative is legend supported by and pieced together by years of research from authors and researchers such as Carey and Schmidt, whose book Witness to Roswell provides timelines and a probable explanation of events based upon hundreds of interviews with people involved in the Roswell story. During the first week of July of that year, 1947, and following a violent thunderstorm that had been the talk of the area, Brazel, accompanied by his neighbor's seven-year-old son, William D. Proctor, nicknamed D., came across a long swath of strange silvery wreckage in one of their pasture areas. There was a large depression in the field that gave the appearance that something had gouged away the earth there. The pile of debris was so thick that the sheep which normally crossed that field to water had taken a wide detour around it. What made it strange was that the silver metal scraps that littered the field could be balled up in the hand once you picked them up, but once released immediately returned to their original shape. Along with these scraps were struts or braces that were made of a very light but tough substance and contained marks that were similar to hieroglyphics. According to an unofficial statement later made by Brazel, both he and D. Proctor witnessed a crashed UFO and dead alien bodies, somewhere at or near that site, bodies that had been ejected or thrown from the craft when it or part of it exploded over that Foster Ranch property. But D. Proctor would not discuss it publicly, for the rest of his life. In 1994, he did bring his mother to that site to show her. That second site, the crash site, was located a few miles southeast of the initial debris field at the Foster Ranch, and it's considered to be the second site in a southeasterly track. If this assessment is correct, it validates the assumption that Mack and Dee followed the path of the debris on horseback a few miles until they came upon the bodies and at least a portion of the wreck. We'll return to this account and the skeptics' response to it a few minutes further on in the story. The third and last site, about 30 miles further southeast, and the closest to Roswell, was accidentally stumbled upon first, apparently, by an archaeologist named William Curry Holden of Texas Tech and a handful of university students. And this site yielded three more alien bodies and one alien still alive but in critical condition, This site was located in a boulder-strewn area on the north slope of the El Capitan Mountains, north and west of Roswell. It may be that military radar had already detected a falling craft, or that witnesses had seen something falling from the sky the night before and called it in, because the Roswell Fire Department was the first to find the wreckage and the bodies. They immediately sent someone to call it into the base. Now pre-dawn, on the morning of July 5, 1947, one of the university students, named Dan Dwyer, recalled seeing the first streaks of dawn showing up from the position where they had camped, and at the same time seeing an extremely strong glow coming from some distance away, a couple of hills distant from where they had camped. The professor and students packed up and began hiking toward it, finally stumbling upon the impact site, and the wreckage of a non-winged, moon-shaped craft which had been thrown up on its side. A fire crew had arrived before them and was searching the site. Within a half hour, the military arrived, moving the fire company and the students to a location out of sight of the wreckage and posting guards with that group. Dwyer reported that his fellow students decoyed the guards with offers of hot coffee long enough for him to sneak away and get a look at what the military was doing at the crash site. He climbed up through the rocky and brush strewn area so that he could peek over the crest of the slope and saw below a tangle of military vehicles, some equipped with antennas, jeeps, and uniformed men. In the midst of all this he saw a crane lifting a strange looking craft onto the back of a flatbed truck, then being secured with chains and cables, and finally being covered with a tarp. Dwyer was the only civilian who witnessed the loading of the craft onto the truck. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. Dwyer was the only civilian who witnessed the loading of the craft onto the truck. Within that 48-hour period, Matt Brazel and Dee Proctor had discovered the initial debris site and the first of the two wreckage and body sites. Picking up some scraps of foil-like material, Brazel and Dee headed for Dee's parents' ranch to see his parents, Floyd and Loretta Proctor. They showed them a sliver of the foil-like material, which they looked at, and then put to the test, finding that it could neither be cut nor burned. The proctor suggested that Brazel take some of it into Roswell to show the sheriff. The next day, Brazel stopped at Wade's Bar and Pool Hall in Corona and found that people had been talking lately about seeing UFOs in the area, which got him to thinking that maybe he had found one. Then he heard about the recent flying saucer sightings in Washington State, which had occurred just weeks before, as well as an eyewitness account given just a day or two ago right here in town from a man who had been run off the road by two flying discs while driving in Arizona just last week. After returning to the ranch that evening, Brazel loaded the largest piece of debris he could find, four feet long by three feet wide by one foot thick, and as he described it, light as a feather, into his old pickup and drove it to a livestock storage shed north of the debris site. It was now July 5th, 1947. The next morning, Brazel completed his ranch chores, loaded some debris into his pickup truck, and drove the 75 miles south to Roswell. The first place Brazel went in Roswell was the sheriff's office, where he ran into Deputy Sheriff Bernie Clark, who passed him along to Sheriff George Wilcox, who was less than interested and was glad to be interrupted by a phone call from the local radio station KGFL, whose young announcer had called, as he often did, for the story of the day, be that a cat up a tree or the arrest of a speeder. Wilcox handed Brazel the phone, and after some back and forth between Joyce, the reporter, and Brazel, the conversation ended. But apparently, Joyce had asked Brazel to find a public phone and call him back. It was July 6th. Brazel's trip to town would result in a huge newspaper story which was immediately quashed by the government and a radio story that was squelched before it ever hit the air when men in black suits confiscated the tape and the FCC threatened the station owner with the pulling of their license if they persisted in running the story. This pressure was accompanied by a threatening call from State Senator Dennis Chavez. The government's objective, one would have to suppose, was to protect the weather balloon project a matter of national security, and prevent panic caused by false stories of UFOs and little green men. Sheriff Wilcox, after Brazel's visit, called the Roswell Army Air Force Base and was connected to Major Jesse Marcel. And Marcel soon picked up Brazel and brought Lieutenant Colonel Sheridan Cabot and Master Sergeant Bill Rickett out to the Foster Ranch in the debris field, where they picked up more pieces and loaded them into two vehicles. Said Marcel, we spent a couple of hours, Monday, this was July 7th, looking for any more parts of the weather device. We found a few more patches of tinfoil and rubber. Marcel had obviously been handed the official line. But RAAF Public Information Officer Walter Haught, the following day, July 8th, had apparently missed that order. He issued a press release stating that personnel from the field's 509th Operation Group had recovered a flying disc which had crashed on a ranch near Roswell. Other papers picked it up. The headline on the Sacramento Bee read, Army Reveals It Has Flying Disc Found on Ranch in New Mexico. Soon after, more press releases were issued, saying that indeed there was a disc, but that it was suspended from a large balloon, which left a trail of rubber and tinfoil and paper and sticks strewn across a 200-yard-long path. The pile of debris it created amounted to 5 pounds of junk. It was all sent to Fort Worth, home of the Army's 8th Air Force headquarters, and General Ramey, and he verified that, yes, indeed, it was the remains of a weather balloon. And the story died the next day. There is a storm of controversy regarding Brazel's debris field findings, and this story would not be complete without it. Many skeptics believe, and they may be right, that what Brazel found was the wreckage of a New York University weather balloon assembly, consisting of remnants of a long vertical train of research balloons and equipment launched by New York University atmospheric researchers and not recovered, specifically Flight No. 4. The research team launched NYU Flight No. 4 on June 4, 1947, from Alamogordo Army Airfield and tracked it flying east-northeast toward Corona. It was within 17 miles of the Brazel Ranch when the tracking batteries failed and contact was lost. That's the official line, and they're sticking with it. New York University's role in launching the constant-level research balloons was not classified. In the 1990s, as a result of a congressional investigation into the Roswell matter, it was learned that the mission also had a classified purpose, called Project Mogul, to learn whether such balloons could take highly sensitive microphones and keep them at a level in the atmosphere, the tropopause where they might be able to detect acoustic signals channeled round the Earth from Soviet nuclear tests. The assembly included three radar reflectors made of foil. They were Signal Core ML-307 Rawin targets. It looked much like a box kite, but with some angular surfaces. The sticks and metallic paper are similar to what Brazel described. You can debate over whether he was coerced to say this, or if he did so of his own volition. We'll never know. The rubber Brazel noted was similar to the neoprene balloons used to carry equipment aloft. The radar reflectors contained small metal eyelets similar to those Brazel had described on the debris he found. But whether he made that description from a statement that was handed to him or out of memory, again, we'll never know. The reinforcing tape used on the NYU targets had curious markings. UFO believers later described these markings on the debris Brazel discovered as hieroglyphics implying some form of alien writing. In this assembly, the tape used to bind it together had a tiny flower pattern that skeptics say could have resembled hieroglyphics to the untrained eye. The entire Project Mogul balloon assemblage was seven to 800 feet long and required three vertical columns to display all the components. They included three radar reflectors, various measuring instruments, and 24 separate balloons so the common explanation of a weather balloon is sort of misleading. And one more bit of information about those flower patterns, Major Jesse Marcel, who accompanied Brazel and another officer back to the debris field, noted that there were small I-beams in the debris that contained markings, and took the time to draw them. They are strange, but they're definitely not flower patterns. This NYU weather balloon launch provided the launch and loss dates are true, are a prime tool for skeptics, and who knows, they may be right. I think it's a stretch that Brazel and Dee followed the path of the debris three miles further to where the wreckage and bodies were reportedly found, but not impossible. To get a full understanding of the Roswell incident from the skeptics' point of view, a number of books are available out there. The UFO Crash at Roswell, The Genesis of a Modern Myth, The UFO Invasion, a Skeptical Inquirer Anthology, the Air Force Research Report regarding the Roswell Incident in 1994, and the Roswell Report, Case Closed. Headquarters, United States Air Force, written by Captain James McAndrew, 1997. Between 1978 and the early 90s, researchers such as Dr. Stanton Friedman, whom we interviewed here at 1001 Heroes before his death, and William Moore, Carl T. Flock, and the team of Kevin Randall and Donald R. Schmidt interviewed several hundred people who claimed to have a connection with the events at Roswell in 1947. Hundreds of documents were obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests. Their conclusions were that at least one alien craft crashed near Roswell. Alien bodies had been recovered, and that a government cover-up had taken place. Friedman was the first civilian journalist to get an account from a military figure who was directly involved and that was Major Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer for Roswell Army Air Force Base, who was the only man known to have accompanied the Roswell debris from where it was recovered to Fort Worth, where reporters were allowed to photograph material which was claimed to be a part of the recovered debris. Marcel confided to Stanton Friedman that it was all staged. Friedman, who worked for years on classified energy storage and propulsion projects for the U.S. government, was a staunch supporter of UFOs and remained so until his death just a few years ago. He believed, as did many other authorities on the subject, that the sharp rise of UFO sightings that occurred after 1945, after the first test detonation of the first atomic bomb at Alamogordo, New Mexico, were attributable to the Earth becoming nuclear, a fact that wasn't lost to other advanced civilizations, who wanted to know the hows, whens, and wheres of our nuclear development included where everything was stockpiled. The sightings of these alien visitor crafts created more curiosity amongst the public. Sightings needed to be documented and reported, and the Air Force began recording these sightings by creating a program called Project Blue Book. This was managed at first by directors like Dr. Alan Hynek, who believed in the existence of extraterrestrial craft, and later by others who did not, and who directed disinformation campaigns to discredit sightings and tamp down on public interest until the program was finally disbanded, at least, officially. Actually, it went underground. It wasn't until 1998, 50 years after the fact, that journalist Frank Joyce, who had been threatened to keep his mouth shut or else about his conversation with Mac Brazel, shared his story. I say, or else, because back in 1947, the government used many heavy-handed tactics to keep people quiet. They denied people due process, used brainwashing and interrogation, forced false written statements, destroyed private property, employed enforcers to put the fear of God in civilian and government witnesses, threatened government employees with termination of benefits, including pensions, and allowed enforcers of all stripes, including the local sheriff, to threaten death to people who couldn't keep their mouths shut. All this reported as fact by hundreds of witnesses who lived there at the time as Joyce recalled his conversation with Brazel. Brazel had told the reporter Joyce about his field being littered with metallic wreckage and wanted to know who was going to clean it all up. Sheep could choke on the scraps. Joyce asked him, what stuff? Brazel said he wasn't sure what it was, and said that maybe it was from a flying saucer, to which Joyce suggested that Brazel called the airbase. Then Brazel started to open up. He asked Joyce, what am I going to do? It's horrible. What's horrible? The stench. What stench? The bodies. They're dead. Who's dead? Little people. What little people? Where? Some place off my property. Well, you know, said Joyce, the military's always testing things. They send up monkeys and things. At this point, Brazel shouted, They're not monkeys. And they're not human and then Brazel slammed the phone down. And within minutes, the KGFL reporter had picked up Brazel, thinking they had the story of the century, and Joyce drove Mac to the home of the station owner, where they got it all on tape on Monday, July 7, 1947. Crashed UFO, dead alien bodies, and all. But the U.S. Army Air Force had gotten wind of it, appeared at the radio station owner's home with armed guards, and picked up Mac Brazel and the tape and took Brazel to the base where he was held and interrogated for one week and forced to sign a statement saying that he had found a weather balloon. Nothing more. Joyce and the station owner got the treatment as well and were told to shut up or else. This was a matter of national security. Brazel was lying and that's all they needed to know. When Brazel was released after being held against his will on base without being able to even use a phone and subject to interrogation and mind control in terms of what he was allowed to remember, and what he must say when he was released. The first thing he did was to return with his now empty truck to the newspaper, accompanied by guards, where he retracted his story, and handed them a new one. And then the radio station, where he asked if he could give them the true story. This was a simple cover story explaining he had found a crashed weather balloon on the ranch property, complete with strings, rubber, baling wire, and tinfoil. He told the Roswell Daily Record that he and his son saw a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tinfoil, and rather tough paper, and sticks, and that he'd paid little attention to it, but returned on July 4th with his son, wife, and daughter to gather up material. The next day, he said, he heard reports about flying discs and wondered if that was what he'd picked up. He then visited Sheriff Wilcox and whispered kind of confidential-like that he might have found a flying disc, he said. But at the end of his written confession, he strangely added that he did not believe that what he'd found was a weather balloon, which contradicted what he'd stated earlier in the piece. Just before leaving the station, Joyce, seeing two uniformed guards just outside the door, pulled Brazel aside and asked about the little green men that Brazel had told him about. Brazel paused before opening the door and said, in a quiet voice, They told me they'd be hard on me if I didn't do what they said. And then, after a pause, he added, They weren't green, before walking through the door. He continued to be hounded by journalists, and he claimed that the wreckage he had found was composed of rubber, tinfoil, tape, and wooden sticks that were all confined to a small area. At the same time, he said that he'd found weather balloons on his ranch before and that this was no weather balloon. Meanwhile, Ronan Adair, a photographer with the Associated Press, had hired a small plane to fly over Foster's ranch, which now was overflowing with military personnel and trucks, as they were searching that location for any parts or wreckage. He did notice a huge fresh gouge in the field that was being searched. The guards waved the plane away, indicating that they didn't want him flying over. Adair also spotted similar activity going on at a second collection site about three miles away. So a weather balloon set up with some tinfoil kites attached required dozens of military personnel at two separate sites. Actually, that would turn out to be three sites to scour the land for any and all pieces of that balloon, which somehow landed at three locations. How can a crash test balloon create a huge gouge in the earth, leave a three-quarter mile trail of debris, then repeat the same process miles away. That's a lot of string, baling wire, and tinfoil. And why the need for a huge security lockdown and a flatbed truck to carry a crashed test balloon? When Brazel was finally allowed to return to the ranch, he did so in the company of Major Marcel, the head of intelligence for Roswell Air Force Base, and Captain Cabot, the head of the CIC. Upon being led to the debris field, Marcel soon sent Cavett back to report to Base Commander Blanchard. Marcel could not identify what the material was that was scattered all over the field. When word got to Blanchard, he contacted General Ramy, 8th Air Force, Fort Worth, and Ramy ordered a full search and pickup, as well as a photo session, during which Marcel and Blanchard were seen in close shots in some office, holding a few pieces of tinfoil that someone had dropped on the floor for them as props. The military was now in full damage control. And it never stopped. Two years later, the military heard that Brazel's son, Bill, motivated by threats from the military never to discuss his father's experiences, turned over a cigar box full of those strange metal pieces to a Captain Armstrong and three NCOs who had heard about him showing the box to a neighbor. The military men asked to be led to the pasture which had been a debris field two years previous as a decoy, while another military team tore the house apart, pulling drawers from dressers, emptying closets, prying up floorboards, and generally trashing the house before going to the cattle shed and slicing up the feed bags before emptying the water tank and checking that out. Then they made Bill swear not to say anything ever again, and threatened he and his wife. All over a weather balloon assembly, if you believe the Air Force, In 1947, an Army Air Force officer named Colonel Hunter Penn was sent in to ensure an information blackout in and around Roswell. And Penn was extremely effective. He used intimidation and threats, and was often seen carrying a pickaxe. He got in a number of confrontations with ranchers, and they were justifiably afraid of him. Because as an enforcer with governmental powers, he could arrest, imprison, and interrogate anyone he wished. His message was to Keep your mouth shut or else. He was assigned to the ranches and small homes that surrounded the three crash site areas. Years afterwards, Penn's daughter revealed in an interview that her father, who was an alcoholic, had beaten both her and her mother regularly. Strangely, he admitted to his daughter what he did as a convincer for the government. Maybe he was hoping to clear his soul. Maybe, his daughter guessed, he told her so that she would fear him more. She admitted that he carried a pickaxe with him and believes that he used it on at least one Roswell rancher. Major Marcel was one of the few and brave who would tell the truth, although many years later, when the threat to his pension had been lifted by government decree. In the book Witness to Roswell, authors Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt, who spent years gathering interview evidence and updating editions as more deathbed confessions became available, added literally hundreds of first- and second-hand accounts gathered from witnesses, families, and friends of those who saw debris and UFOs and at least five alien bodies being retrieved from three different debris and crash sites located miles apart in the high desert. The UFO was loaded onto a flatbed, covered with a tarp, and driven to the base at Roswell right down Main Street in broad daylight, complete with full military guard a lot of pomp and circumstance for a wrecked military balloon. Teams of dozens of soldiers and MPs from Roswell Air Force Base were transported to the three sites to search shoulder to shoulder, every inch of those sites for debris. Then were sent again, and then a third time. The bodies of five, possibly six aliens, one of them reported to be still alive, were brought to the Roswell Base Hospital, where they were attended to by doctors, nurses, and the town mortician, and witnessed by those with high security clearance. All of the witness accounts agreed on the features of the aliens. The aliens' heads were proportionately larger than a human's head, proportionately meaning that the aliens were only three and a half to four feet tall. They had two large, teardrop-shaped eyes, a vague nose, slits for ears, and a slit for a mouth, which was not there to absorb food or talk. There were no teeth, There were no digestive or reproductive organs. The neck and torso were thin, and there was no hair, only a slight fuzz. The arms were long and thin, with four-fingered hands that reached almost to the knee. The skin, which was described as reptilian and stretchable, was described as being either bluish-gray or pinkish-gray or yellowish-orange, as was described by Melvin Brown, a sergeant with the 509th. He described the skin as being lizard-like. A number of ranchers, rancher kids, and even a volunteer fire crew reached one of the wreckage sites that contained what was described as an egg-shaped craft with three bodies inside. This was in Chavez County. A second crash site held more alien bodies. This was located closer to Corona in Lincoln County. Researchers, based on interviews with transport pilots as well as those on the receiving end, tell us that on July 8th and 9th, The bodies and parts of the wreckage were flown out to Wright field, which still serves as the gathering point in the U.S. for all things that fall to the earth. The still-living alien was transported to Washington, D.C., where it survived briefly, and was autopsied by Dr. Lejeune Carter, an expert on spinal cord structure, who was brought out for one month for the purpose of studying the body. Upon return home, her housekeeper later described her as saying, that she couldn't talk about her assignment, and that her life had been threatened to assure that she would not. Between 1947 and the late 1970s, the Roswell matter was kept fairly quiet, until Dr. Stanton Friedman's interview with Jesse Marcel provided the crack in the dam needed to get other witnesses talking. In 1980, the first conspiracy book on Roswell, called The Roswell Incident, was published. The authors were Charles Berlitz and William Moore, who had found earlier success with the Philadelphia Experiment and the Bermuda Triangle. Their narrative theorized that an alien craft was flying over the New Mexico desert, observing U.S. weapons facilities, but crashed in a wild electrical storm after being hit by lightning, killing the aliens on board. A government cover-up followed. The authors claimed to have interviewed over 90 witnesses, including intelligence officer for the 509th, Jesse Marcel, who was interviewed by Stanton Friedman, who was not credited in the book, with Marcel saying that the debris found was not of this earth. Other accounts by Bill Brazel, the son of Mac Brazel, their neighbor, Floyd Proctor, and Walt Whitman, Jr., the son of radio station owner Walt Whitman, all suggested that the debris found had super strength, sprang back into its original shape after being crushed in the hand, and that efforts were made by the military to silence them and cover up the true story. The story also included the testimony of civil engineer Barney Barnett in first person, a portion of which reads I was out on assignment working near Magdalena, New Mexico one morning when light reflecting off some sort of large metallic object caught my eye. It was about a mile away across the desert, and I went to have a look. But he wasn't alone as it turned out. The crashed disk, 25 to 30 feet across, according to his account, was already surrounded by a group of people who introduced themselves as an archaeology team from a Texas university. And we relayed their story earlier here. They'd stumbled across the disk by accident, just as Barnett had. But Barnett, according to him, had gotten close enough to see the bodies. Quote, I noticed that they were standing around looking at some dead bodies that had fallen to the ground. End quote. There were other corpses inside the disk. The bodies, said Barnett, as quoted by Verne Malte, quote, were like humans, but they were not humans. The heads were round. The eyes were small, and they had no hair. The eyes were oddly spaced. They were quite small by our standards, and their heads were larger in proportion to their bodies than ours, End quote. At which point Jean Malte, who had gotten a statement from Barnett, put in that Barnett had repeated several times that their eyes were small and oddly spaced. And that remains a head-scratcher. Almost all other accounts tell of large, almond-shaped eyes, and it's conflicting accounts like this that skeptics love to bring forward. Over the years, books, articles, and television specials brought the 1947 incident significant notoriety. By the mid-1990s, public polls such as the 1997 CNN Time Poll revealed that the majority of people interviewed believed that aliens had indeed visited Earth and that aliens had landed at Roswell, but that all the relevant information was being kept secret by the U.S. government. Countless movies, books, TV series, and documentaries have been spawned as a result of the Roswell legend, some coming close to the story. Others, such as the TV series Roswell, are entirely fiction, but simply borrow the name Roswell for its value as being something out of the ordinary. A few side notes and stories before we end. I discovered a side story at Angel Fire, and I'm not sure who wrote it, about a boy and his uncle who were enjoying a history-based road trip together that summer, 1947, in Arizona. The boy wanted to learn more about the long walk endured by the Navajos and the Apaches, as well as visit the gravesite of Billy the Kid, located a couple of miles outside of Fort Sumner, New Mexico. They were also searching for fossils related to the Teratorn, a prehistoric bird with a 20-plus foot wingspan thought to be the inspiration for the Thunderbird legend so common among the Indians. They were just outside Williams, Arizona, on July 2, 1947, and rolling down Route 66. It was around 10 a.m., and the boy who had had a bout with something he'd eaten the previous day, was napping. Suddenly, he was thrown to the floor as his uncle swerved in reaction to a low-flying something that swooshed in over the car from behind. As it passed over maybe 200 feet above the truck at a high speed, the boy's uncle could see two large, sharp-edged, almost flat, circular-shaped objects, blunt across the back and seemingly made out of metal. They were flying side by side, with one apparently in front, both headed east-southeast out over the horizon and traveling extremely fast. In the few seconds it took the boy to gain his seat back, they were gone, leaving in their wake a faint smell similar to that of electric and a quarter-mile-wide swath of thick, swirling air laying turbulently above the treetops like a sweltering merge over a dry lake. Of course, it's all just legend and hearsay. But this would account for two wreckage sites if maybe one or both of those craps had been struck by lightning. That would account for two crash sites and the two sets of bodies. Just saying. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com And now, back to our show. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Be sure to join us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and expand your horizons with some great short stories from writers like Jack London and Ernest Hemingway and Mark Twain. And by the way... We love reviews, and here's some new ones. This one, five stars, very well-researched and objective. I just found this podcast based on the Bridie Murphy topic. It was fantastic to hear a well-researched and objective version of the story without the skeptical predilection to begin with a non-belief and refuse to list any evidence that isn't consistent with that viewpoint. This talked about both sides, rather than simply choosing to discard actual evidence. That one from Jake1931, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Jake. And this one, good storytelling, five stars. It's like someone gave my grandpa a podcast. Stories about monsters, aliens, heroes, and World War II. Clunky format, abrupt ads, and odd editing choices only seem to add to the charm. That one from Randy4, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, amazing. I've listened to every episode. I eagerly await new episodes every Sunday. The attention to detail is incredible. The host's voice is soothing and makes learning fun. That one from ever amused. Apple podcast, US. And this one, love it. Five stars. Absolutely love this podcast. John's attention to detail is impressive. Can't wait for new episodes to drop on iTunes each week. So good. So very, very good. Thanks, John. Down from Bombastic Bushkin, Apple Podcast, US. And this one, five stars. This is my favorite podcast. I started listening to this podcast about a year ago, and I'm ready to stop my Audible account. The reader is very good, and the content, there's something for everyone. So interesting and so educational. Keep them coming. Down from Moody Molly, Apple Podcast, US. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to write these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. And they help new people find our show and shows. We appreciate that very much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. Thanks, everyone, for thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, everyone, for listening, for tuning in, for sharing with others, and for your reviews. We appreciate them all. We appreciate it all very much. Everyone, take care. Stay safe. And all our shows, all our shows come out every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll see you then. Stay tuned, everyone, for portions of that Stanton Friedman interview that I promised you. The quality of it isn't that great on his end. We had trouble trying to identify what the background noise was. Some parts you'll find better than others. But what he has to say is extremely interesting. Enjoy. Uh,
0: I should stress that not only Blue Book Special Report 14, but there are normally four other large-scale scientific studies that I talk about. And when I check my audiences, I find out that 95% of the people have read none of them. So uh, let me make clear where I stand. One, the evidence is overwhelming. Planet Earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. Some UFOs are alien spacecraft. Most are not. I don't care about the ones who are not. Uh, Two, we're dealing with a cosmic water gate. There's a great deal of data blacked out documents, whited out documents. You go after the NSA and they'll release 156 top secret Umbra UFO documents. You can read one sentence per page. (laughs) That's not releasing. The third conclusion, uh, there are no good arguments against the first two. And the fourth is we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium, business of planet earth by alien spacecraft for purposes that we don't yet really know about, that's significant, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, I've had it. I've answered. I once figured out how many thousands of questions I've answered over the years. You uh,
1: know, 700
0: lectures, uh, 19 countries, 10 provinces, 50 states. I get around, and there's always question and answer periods and interviews and all this sort of stuff. So one of the problems we have is that most people think most people don't believe in flying saucers, so they act accordingly. But I've never found that to be the case. I've had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. And you get that many if you're talking about sports, religion, politics, whatever. So it's okay. When I ask at the end of my uh, lectures, how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer. This is after my lecture. Just raise your hand. I count, point and count, 10%. Then I say, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. And when I talk to people, why didn't you report it? They think I was some kind of a nut. So that's an important consideration and why I'm such a guy going around, I've written six books, etc., and doing the media stuff because I think people need to hear the facts and the data, not the mythology that comes from the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them. So, uh, I'm convinced that there's been a major shift in attitudes uh, in general. One of the reasons something straightforward, when Frank Drake in 1960 talked about listening for signals because there may be beings out there sending radio waves. He was talking that there might be 6,000 places that could be sending us signals. So a lot of work, gotta listen. Now, because of the Kepler uh, satellite, we know that there are about 1.6 planets per star. Think about that for a minute. Within 100 light years of here, there are 10,000 stars. That means about 16,000 planets just down the street. And the galaxy is thousands of light years across. So our perspective has changed I don't run into anybody who says, well, there can't be anybody out there. The planet's all over the place. I'm not saying they all have life, but don't forget colonization and migration. Everybody's got to be concerned. What if there's a catastrophe? Where do we go next? So we got to find out about the neighborhood. And so our perspective has changed drastically in the direction of saying, Life all over the place out there, guys, some of it more advanced than we are. What else is new? (laughs) (laughs) So it's that sense of perspective. If I had said there's 1.6 planets per star 60 years ago, mark them up, somebody would have said. You know, now that's what the facts indicate.
1: So we, we need to take that into account. I also want to get your take on I think it was uh, I think it was Dr. Hynek, and it may, it may also have been Carl Sagan who believed that the, the biggest reason that they don't believe in interplanetary travel is that the planets are so far apart that no one's propulsion system could get them from A to Z and where do you stand on that one? Carl Sagan and I, incidentally, were classmates at the University of Chicago
0: for three years in the same physics class. He came to my lecture at Cornell, and so uh, I'm sorry he's not still with us. The whole question of getting here from there, when you, if you start assuming that the next guy over is 500 light years away, that's one thing. I've done a lot of work on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. And there was a star map seen there. And a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish built a whole bunch of three-dimensional models I was able to identify the stars in the pattern. And the bait stars, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2, it's the constellation of reticulum. You can't see it from here. You've got to go below the equator to see it. Anyway, those two stars are an eighth of a light year apart. 30 times closer to each other than we are to the next star over. Secondly, this fusion propulsion thing. I, I get people saying, oh, they can't stand the acceleration. I've had audiences guess. I say a multiple choice question. How long does it take at 1G acceleration? That's the force of gravity right here, right? It drops something. It accelerates toward the center of the Earth. Uh, at 1G, how long does it take to get to the speed of light? Multiple choice, 1,000 years, 100 years, 10 years, or one. How many think it's a 1,000, 100, 10, one? Most people think it's a 1,000 or a 100. It takes less than one year at 1G to get close to the speed of light, less than a year. Now, you can't do that in my car, but, you know, that's not what we're talking about. And so there's another, people want half an Einstein. Everybody knows Einstein said the speed of light's the limit. What he also said, which has been demonstrated in the lab, is as you get close to the speed of light, time slows down. Now, don't ask me why, that's the way God created the universe, you know, pick any reason you want How much does it slow down? Well, Depends on how close you get. Well, as it happens, less than a year to get close to the speed of light, the Large Hadron Collider, that huge accelerator over in Switzerland there, accelerates particles to 99.999% of the speed of light. You can go out, come back, marry your granddaughter's best friend. I mean, that's how much difference it makes. And so, one has to presume that any smart alien, he's, he's got a two-stage system. Just we have aircraft carriers. Nuclear-powered aircraft carriers can operate for eighteen years without refueling. The little airplanes they carry can fly for two hours without refueling. You know, different systems. So. When you start looking at the practical physics, there are two different environments one in the vicinity of a planet like ours, gravitational field and atmosphere, which affects drag, heating, uh, sonic boom production, all those other things, and an empty space in between. In that empty space, there ain't nothing getting in the way, man. You go fast, very fast. And so, Yes, it's a common argument. You can't get here from there. But it isn't true. You can't do it with a 747. I like flying in big airplanes, but no, you can't do it with that. But there are a lot of things that it takes. Technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. If I told somebody that I would have a computer on my Desk and it's not a fancy one that can do the things that it does. 60 years ago, they'd have laughed their heads about I remember when I started working in industry, computers filled up a whole room. They needed air conditioning for the the whole thing. They didn't have anywhere near the capability that my little desk computer does. You know, we, we call it a desktop, but it's a remarkable device. So the argument you can't get here from there, you have to add, well, if you use the old systems of doing things, you know, if you use crummy technology, uh, it took Magellan three years to go around the planet. Three years. He didn't make it to ship <laughs> But the space station does it in 95 minutes. Wow. It's not a small sailboat it's an entirely different device you see what i'm saying Gotcha. so we we need to uh, try to give the kids a sense of how much how far we've come within my lifetime
1: when did stanton when did you first become involved in the roswell story and and also for our, our listener's sake let them know what the story is as you tell us how you became involved
0: well the, the basic story is that there was a crash of two flying saucers, for want of a better word, in New Mexico in 1947. It's called Roswell. That was the nearest town. Now, the debunkers forget to tell you Roswell was a special place. Why? It was the home of the 509, the only atomic bombing group in the entire world. In the world. They dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They tested two more in the testing thing two years later. So uh, I I had an astronomer in England say, why would anybody go to New Mexico? There's nothing there but sand. There is a lot of sand in New Mexico. (laughs) And I said, have you ever been there? Well, no. Then you don't know that two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States are in New Mexico that all our early advanced rocketry was done at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. So uh, one of the reasons these things are there is there aren't many people. You don't set off bombs and rockets when there are a lot of people around. It's not not
1: good for the property value. It wouldn't work too well in suburban Philadelphia. <laughs> no,
0: no, not at all. So I heard about it. Uh, Colleague and I were talking to a man in San Francisco who had a good sighting. I was living in California at the time. And uh, he said, You really ought to talk to my mom. She had a great report. Lydia Sleppy was her name. So I got her number, I called her, and she had a good sighting. She was in Roswell. And they called. Report it to because they didn't have a wire service down there, uh, to Albuquerque where they had connections and all that sort of stuff. And they were talking about it on the phone, and uh, they were interrupted by the FBI. Discontinue this conversation, okay? (laughs) What she says, what should I do? And just continue the conversation, you know. That's when I first heard about it. And I got as many names as I could, and I got as far as I could. And they couldn't remember it was a long time ago. This is in the 70s. We're talking about something that happened in 47. So then I was in Louisiana doing a television interview. And I finished the interview, and the program manager, the station managers, said, You know, the guy you really ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. Brilliant investigator that I am. I said, Who's he? Well, his next sentence changed my life. He handled wreckage of one of those saucers you were interested in when he was in the military. He was not joking. There was nobody else around. I, I was shook up. Uh, we're old ham radio buddies. And so, okay, he lives in Homa, Louisiana. That didn't tell me anything I didn't know where Homa was. The next day, I called information. For the younger people listening, we used to get phone numbers by calling information, not by going to a computer. And I got a number for Jesse Marcel, and I called him. I stressed my background because I wanted him to know that I'd been in the nuclear business, you know, that I wasn't just some UFO nut or whatever. And he told me his story. He was the intelligence officer with the five hundred nine, based in Roswell. Incidentally, they had a 13,000-foot runway there, one of the longest in the country, because there were B-36s based there, six foot of concrete, 13,000 feet. The German Air Force used to come over and fly there because plenty of room, no mountains close by. So I talked to Jesse, he gave me some names. You know, for, this is, we're talking. This is like in nineteen seventy seven or so. So I had a lot of work to do. And the next couple of years, found sixty people. Uh, talked to Walter Hout. He was the base public information officer. He had a base yearbook. Got a copy of that. So I got lots of names. And you call somebody, and no, I don't remember anybody. And then after 10 minutes, oh yeah, did you talk to Joe Jones, Bill Smith, whatever? First year, 60 people, a bunch more the next year going after uh, witnesses. And we're talking about the most elite military group in the country. Jesse was the intelligence officer for the group that dropped the atom bombs on Japan. That counts for a great deal because you had to have high-level clearances. You had to be completely trustworthy. And, you know, we're mm-hmm. talking peak of that sort of stuff. These weren't a bunch of GIs who had nothing other to do than sweep the floor and hear something exciting. This was preparedness. They they were a special group. So, I got help a lot of other people find other people, and uh, so Roswell. Made clear to the government back in 47 because they had wreckage of two crash flying so saucers, bodies, testimony from high level people. This was significant. Something that had to be dealt with. It couldn't be ignored because the reports were coming in from all over the place, obviously. But when you got wreckage, there's proof positive. Also, it means you're vulnerable. You don't want your enemies to find out what you got. And you want them to talk to your people and all this sort of stuff. So you can understand. The uh, the headlines in forty seven, Army captures flying saucer on ranch and Roswell region. Next day, general says it's radar weather balloon. And that was the end of it.
1: Mm-hmm. But you
0: understand why. You didn't want people looking into it. Thinking about it and so forth. So, uh, Roswell, I am going to be at Roswell. They have an annual festival. And Roswell's in the middle of nowhere. It's 200 miles from Albuquerque. New Mexico's a big state. It's 200 miles from Amarillo, Texas. It's 200 miles from El Paso, Texas. If you're there, it's because you want to be there. It's not on the way to anywhere. Last year, the International UFL Museum and Research Center. Had two hundred and twenty-three thousand visitors. Wow! Not on the way to someplace else. Going to Roswell. So I mean that gives you an indication. I'm going back. I'm going to be the Grand Marshal of the parade this year.
1: Congratulations! In July. I don't think I'm riding a horse. In case you're <laughs> what did Jesse tell you? What did What did Jesse share with you? Jesse Marcel. Jesse told me his story.
0: Uh, A rancher came into the sheriff's office with some wreckage. There had been an announcement that there was a reward being offered. This is in '47 now. And he stopped at the local store there. I mean, he went into Roswell, talked to the sheriff. The sheriff sent him to the base. He told the story to Jesse Marcel, Jesse's commander, Colonel Blanchard, who incidentally went on to be a four-star general and vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force before he died of a massive heart attack. He wasn't a dink either, is what I'm saying. Uh, the Colonel Blanchard told Jesse, take one of our counterintelligence corps guys out. They followed the rancher, William Brazel, out to the crash site. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I, I've been, been out there. It's nowhere. <laughs> There's nothing there. No no stores, no nothing, you know. And they brought back two vehicles full of pieces and spread out over an area half a mile, you know, covered a big area. And Jesse told me in our first conversation that he thought there must have been a mid-air collision or something, or explosion at least, because the wreckage covered such a large area. I mean, it didn't just hit and make a hole in the ground, in other words. So he was on the airplane. Jesse was sent with some of the wreckage, The headquarters of the 8th Air Force, of which they were a part, that was in Fort Worth, Texas. And General Roger Ramey was head of the 8th Air Force. And I talked to Thomas Jefferson DuBose, who was Ramey's assistant. And he remembers the phone call coming from Ramey's boss, General McMullen in Washington. Send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your colonel couriers. I don't want you to talk about it again. This was a big deal. And Jesse being the intelligence officer for this, of course, you don't say anything to anybody. Standard practice. I've also talked, incidentally, Jesse's son was at home when Jesse came home with the wreckage before he went to the base the next day. He was 11 years old. He went on to be a colonel, a medical doctor, and so forth. He has testified, he's written a book about this. He's deceased now, so is Jesse Sr., of course. But these are the kind of people, I mean, a medical doctor, colonel, was called back in and flew combat at age 67 in helicopters in the Middle East. These are special people, you know. So the Roswell story uh, has drawn a lot of attention all over the world, Uh we found a lot of people who knew a part of it. There's a DVD out. It's got testimony, from 27 first-hand witnesses. They're all dead now. All, all but one. One was a young man who was with his family in the area at the time. So Roswell marked a turning point, in other words. It's one thing to say you saw strange craft cavorting around the sky, but when you got
1: bodies and wreckage, that's another matter entirely. How many body? How many bodies were there, and how could they tell it was two crafts? They had reports from two. Of, I wish I would love to have
0: to be able to see the reports that the government investigators wrote. We don't have any of that stuff. It, it's kind of interesting that we don't have that stuff. Uh, it, you know, people think governments can't keep secrets. Oh, the government can't keep the secret, come on. Uh, I point out that the NSA, National Security Agency, very highly classified intelligence organization. And it really means never says anything, you know. We filed a legal action a number of years ago under freedom of information to get their UFO files. And it took a long time. They finally uh, released some. You could read one sentence per page on 156 pages. Everything else is whited out. (laughs) We've been after the CIA. But they're under freedom of information. we got about 900 pages of stuff up through secret. Mostly blacked out. It took uh, several years beyond that to get the top secret stuff. And you can read. Five words a page, six words a page, stuff like that. So, and what's really funny is somebody filed another request for a set of those papers. The NSA said, uh, gee, we've looked and we can't find those. We can't
1: make a set for you. <laughs> That's so, frustrating. <laughs> the, the skeptics will tell you again and again, there's nothing to see here. There's no such thing as as UFOs. There's no such thing as visitors from other planets. If there were, our government would tell us. And no, our government's not hiding anything. And yet, when you go to these reports, and you've got 600 pages, and 598 of them are redacted, what are we supposed to believe? Well, look, I had a clearance for 14 years. I
0: don't even have copies of some of the final reports I wrote. It had nothing to do with UFOs. You understand? you Radiation shielding for nuclear rockets, nuclear airplanes stuff like that. All kinds of, it was very interesting work until they canceled the program. <laughs> I've worked on more canceled programs than anybody. Of course the government can keep secrets. And I, I have people tell me, well, the wives of the people, I'm a supporter of the Majestic 12 group. We got some documents which said this group was set up to deal with flying. So named the members of the group. Very outstanding group of scientists and military people and so forth and uh, i I get people who don't seem to understand that governments can and do and should keep secrets i'm not saying this secret should be kept i'm just saying that's the reality of the matter like it or not has nothing to do with it and the basic rule again you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies and people say, those guys would have talked to their wives. I never told my wife anything classified. i be breaking the law in the first place. It'd be stupid. I can't control what she says and how would she know what's important or what isn't important. Uh, and people look at me sometimes. I mean, husbands don't talk to their wives. No, darn it, they don't. I mean, that, that's the rule of the game. I, I once had to carry my own slides to a conference. I was giving a presentation, and they weren't ready for the courier who was going to, official carrier of stuff. And I was think, so they sat me down, scared the heck out of me. How do I have to take care of those slides? And they don't go in the trunk of the car when i am got the rental car at the other end. They stay with you. And I was so glad to get rid of that stuff you wouldn't believe. That's the way things are. And I, I, I've never talked to anybody, I've talked to lots of people who like clearances, who give any indication of ever telling their wife anything classified. It's the wrong thing to do, penalties are severe. So Roswell was the beginning, it's not the only crash, there have been others, but it certainly. Told us that there was something very exciting, very important, potentially dangerous going on. And who knows how many uh, things we've learned from the wreckage, for example. I was surprised to find out that I was looking at some work on uh, special magnetic materials, and I was surprised to find out oh, the original work on that was done at Wright Patterson Air Force Base which is where the wreckage went. Uh, can I prove a link? Of course not. I don't have the document that says it.
1: They keep coming up in all my stories, whether it's the Kecksburg UFO Bell or anything else that that landed. Apparently, the pieces went to Wright-Patterson Wright Air Force Base. And the, and the the rumor, and I won't go long on this, but the rumor with the Kecksburg UFO, which is one of our past episodes, was that that was created... By the German contingent of the German scientists that we brought over immediately after World War II, changed their names and had them working for us at Wright Patterson on uh, rocketry propulsion. Werner von
0: Braun was one of those guys. Yep, yeah. and yep.
1: that and that their German well, counterparts sent literally sent the, the Bell <laughs> over uh, on a satellite. And it launched down off the satellite, entered the Earth's atmosphere. The people saw it coming over the hills of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And within hours, the Air Force was there to cordon off the area, put it on a flatbed, and take it 160 miles up to Wright-Patterson. I think they were trying to send it to Wright-Patterson, but might have fallen short by a couple hours' drive. <laughs> and, of course, the townspeople were all told, nothing to see here, don't worry about it, as the flatbed, with something bell-shaped underneath a huge tarp on the back of the... Of the flatbed, went out of town at two o'clock in the morning, headed for Ohio.
0: Look, I've been at Roy Patterson. Uh, I'm project monitor, project director on a project evaluating. Uh, I, I love the title; it illustrates the problem here: analysis and evaluation of fastened intermediate reactors for space vehicle applications. I'm a nuclear guy, reactor. Uh, one word was left out Soviet. I was looking at Soviet technology. I don't have a copy of my final report. I, I was glad when I heard about a crash saucer somewhere. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, they weren't doing, oh, I, I know what it was. The Russians, actually, most Americans aren't aware. I worked on nuclear power plants for space. Why? Because you get a lot of energy in a small package. That's very useful if you're going to put it in space, because you've got to launch the darn thing. And Cosmos 954 came down, and it had a nuclear reactor on board. Well, it turns out that the Soviets launched 34 nuclear reactors into space. The United States launched one. They were way ahead of us. Nobody said anything about that. But, and Wright-Patterson was the people that I dealt with in my study. So uh, you begin to appreciate there's a lot going on that we don't know about. And because you've got access under one program doesn't mean you have it under another program. Two things. A need to know and an appropriate clearance. Having a clearance isn't enough. Because you got a top-secret clearance doesn't mean you have access to everything that's top-secret. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. So, uh, you know, (laughs) it's kind of funny. Uh, When Lyndon Johnson was elected president, New Mexico hadn't voted for him. So what did he do? He closed the base to Roswell and moved that base to Texas, of all places. So it serves them right that Roswell gets all those tourists coming. Some good came out of it. They did nothing wrong. Like I said, they got a 13,000 foot runway. Uh, it's it's fitting that they reap the benefit. And I recommend the museum to anybody
1: who's out that
0: way. It's worth
1: it. Some of the most notable UFO incidents uh, since 1947 that, you are, that you're aware of, or that, you've done, uh, that you've written about?
0: Well, I, I have talked about, other people have written about, the uh, RB-47 case. A reconnaissance bomber encounters a UFO. They pick it up on their radar. It circles around this. It's a military plane over the Gulf of Mexico. And they, they're with this thing for almost an hour. And it takes it off. You got six highly trained crew members, all kinds of gear, radar, radio equipment, and stuff like that. Uh, what can you do with a case? Like Dr. James E. McDonald followed up on that. He was an outstanding ufologist. Uh, his congressional testimony has 41 separate cases that he investigated, where he talked to all the witnesses and so forth, uh, many of the military, of course. Uh, the, I like the physical trace cases. A man named uh, Ted Phillips uh, has collected several thousand physical trace cases. He was a protege of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Allen was the Air Force scientific consultant on Blue Book for 20 years. and Ten gathered the cases where people saw the saucer on or near the ground, and after it leaves, you find the equivalent of burn circles, burn rings, landing gear marks, stuff like that. Uh, you know, and about uh, it, 16% of six of the cases involve reports of beings associated with the craft on the ground. And after the first hundred good cases, you're stuck. This is reality, folks. You know. So there's loads of them there. Uh, I like multiple witness radar visual cases. Uh, they just released that tape of the Navy jets chasing this thing, which suddenly goes zip. Yeah,
1: the, de- <laughs> the debunkers are saying that was a reflection.
0: reflection of idiocy on a part of the debunkers is all I can say. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we can't forget that we trust our military pilots with a very sophisticated piece of equipment to be in a position to handle nuclear weapons as the occasion arises and the, who have high level clearances and you don't they don't turn over a, an F18 to just anybody coming along and they're trained one of the important things about being a military aircraft pilot to be able to very quickly distinguish between friend and foe, looking at other flying things in the neighborhood, because you don't have much time to make a decision. Should I shoot or not? Should I get out of here? What, what, what do I do? Highly trained, highly motivated, uh, well-paid as military people go. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's easy to dismiss that testimony, but I, I've won debates. I debated with the head of the Skeptic Society, Dr. Michael Shermer, on Coast to Coast Radio for a three-hour show, a lot of ads and so forth. I, then they took a poll of the audience. Eighty percent said I won.
1: <laughs>
0: he hadn't studied any of the documents. He hadn't studied any of the evidence. No simple-minded solution. What do these foreigners want? It depends on who you ask, you know, what's going on. So what I'm saying is I can understand the concern with secrecy. The Cold War, let me give you an example of why we were concerned about secrets. Uh, In 1948, General Wesley Groves, who headed the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons, was asked, how soon before the Russians have it, in 48? Uh, and he hemmed and hawed, and while they've had a terrible war and blah, 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 his best estimate was eight years. Nothing to worry about now. It took a little over a year before the Russians exploded their first A-bomb. And have a radar network around the country. There's nothing to worry about. We're invincible, and vulnerable. They can't cross the ocean. And they don't have airplanes to deliver it. And then one there's a, a whole fleet of big planes. They copied a B-29 that we had left over there at Lindley's stuff. And they built a bunch of big airplanes. So suddenly you realize you really have to be careful here about what you tell the public and what you guess about what these characters want? Because there were sightings all over the world And many from pilots who said they outmaneuvered us all over the place. We couldn't win a battle with these guys in the sky. So this is not a curious situation of, oh, I wonder what those guys want. You know, it's not not simple money
1: like that. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for excerpts from our interview with nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please send us a review. We would appreciate that. Very much. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back with a brand new story next Sunday night at 8 p.m. at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries.